Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to Leading Edge Love Radio. This is your host, Sumati Sparks, the Open Relationship Coach. Have you ever wondered how well suited you are for ethical non-monogamy? Well, you can find out by taking my quiz. And you can find the quiz right on the homepage of my website at sumatisparks.com. And when you request the quiz, you'll be automatically added to my mailing list, so you'll be the first to learn about my virtual events and to receive occasional helpful tidbits of advice and information on how to add more love, passion, and joy into your life. So tonight, I'm really happy to have as my guest, Jolie Hamilton. Jolie is a research psychologist, a certified sexuality educator, a TEDx speaker, and a professor of human sexuality. She's the author of the best-selling book, Project Relationship, The Entrepreneur's Action Plan for Passionate, Sustainable Love. Jolie holds a doctorate in depth psychology from Pacifica Graduate Institute, where she studied the impact of jealousy on relationships. Welcome to the show, Jolie. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Always fun to talk open relating. Definitely. Thanks so much for being here. Um, So, yeah, I just wanted to start out by asking you, how does a nice girl like you grow up to be a certified sexuality educator (laughs) studying jealousy? Oh, that's such a good question because we all come to this work through unique ways. And, um, you know, for me, it started because I grew up in a really dysfunctional house, a really tough environment, but my parents managed to do a really good job at not shaming sex and sexuality. And so I felt competent and confident in that one area of my life. Um, And so as I was growing, maturing, aging, I often was that person that people talked to about intimacy stuff. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until years went by that I realized, oh, I'm doing sex education all the time. I did it as a a doula, as a health and, and wellness coach. And so eventually I decided to take it really seriously. And I I studied for my certification. I'm an ASEC certified sexuality educator. And I really wanted to take it to that next level. So I decided to become a psychologist too, so I could really speak to the inner experience of sexuality Mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. You said you were an ASEC certified sexuality educator. Can you just explain what that is for people that don't know? Yeah, so ASEC, the American Association of Sex Educators, Counselors, and Therapists, is a great organization that helps us identify who has spent some time really diving into the not only the um, core knowledge that people need to talk about sexuality, but also the ways that we can best educate, counsel, and offer therapy in issues of sexuality. Because Most people don't realize this, but a lot of programs for therapists or counselors and certainly for educators don't really offer us specific information about sexuality. Um, Mm -hmm. I actually currently sit on the board for ASECT, and um, it's my my honor to work to help make sure that there are great opportunities for people to get the continuing education that they need in order to provide really solid evidence-based information about sexuality. Cool. Thank you. Okay. So tell me about your history of non-monogamy and like, when did you start practicing Mm. that? And like, what were some of your juicy learning mistakes that you made? (laughs) 
Oh, goodness. So many juicy learning mistakes. That's the perfect way to put it. Um, <laughs> so consciously non-monogamous um, for 13 years. And when I say consciously, I mean, because when I learned about the words, the vocabulary for non-monogamy, I looked back over my life and I realized, oh, I've been polyamorous, as in falling in love with many people at the same time my whole life, as going back as far as I can remember, maybe to as early as seven or eight years old, having little crushes on multiple people at the same time. Um, but I grew up in a pretty traditional environment um, in the New England area of the United States, and I really didn't hear any non-conventional, unconventional, interesting stories about how you might love multiply. So it wasn't until I had a cataclysmic moment on a dance floor at 33 years old, <laughs> and mm -hmm. I, I had this, like, full download, like, boom, like a, like a lightning bolt went through my body, dancing with, well, a family friend, something I'd known my whole life and I'd never thought of in any sort of sexual or intimate way. I just thought of him as a friend, a person I'd known my whole life. I had this moment. It was a numinous moment of, of realization that I had this, these big feelings for them. And I couldn't unsee it. I couldn't unfeel it. And mm -hmm. from that moment, I only knew one thing to be totally true. And that was that the feelings I had were real. And that if I lied about it, if I tried to hide it and cover it up, I was probably going to make a big mess of my life. Mm -hmm. um, so <laughs> I did what I thought was right. And I told my husband, I told my friends because we were all part of the same friend circle. I was very honest about it. And I was so naive. I really thought that it would all be okay. But <laughs> of course, <laughs> um, falling in love with your husband's best friend usually doesn't go over that well. And I didn't have the words. And I didn't know how to explain it. And I kept saying to him, you know, I can control my actions, but I don't, I can't control the feeling. I can't make the feeling right. go away. And I didn't want to have to hold the secret. And so, right. yeah, he really, he tried. I will give him credit. He tried, but unfortunately, it really didn't fit in his paradigm. It just didn't fit. And it actually sort of broke us. Um, mm. it, it crashed what I now understand to be an incredibly dysfunctional and codependent relationship because this new information entered the picture. It smashed all of the rules that currently held our not so healthy relationship together. Mm. And we weren't equipped to make new, a new life. And yeah, so my way out of that was, well, 45 days later, I found myself separated with four biological children. And mm. um, 40, 46 days later, I found myself in a polyamorous triad um, with seven children. <laughs> with that so guy? It didn't, yeah, yeah. With, with the, that guy with and friends. his wife. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Who I had, you know, I really genuinely did not know what I was doing. And it's part of why I do what I do today is that, this is 13, 13 and a half years ago, and I, there weren't the number of resources that there are today. There weren't mm -hmm. as many people out there talking about it. And so when I even tried to search the Internet, I didn't even know what words to type in to <laughs> get the information that I needed. I you typed in, I'm a naughty start. girl. What do I do? 
Yes. Yeah, I was. I was like, what happens when you fall in love with more than one person? That did not give me the answers I needed. It did not. Not, not helpful. And yet, some very interesting and, like you said, messy, borderline dangerous, but very powerful lessons came out of that mm-hmm. time because when I got into that triad, it was with genuinely good intentions on all of our parts, but nobody knew what they were doing. The the couples that I joined, um, they had been open, but it was very don't ask, don't tell, and they really couldn't communicate with each other, let alone with a new person. And mm-hmm. we had so much to learn in such a tight amount of time that it, it all became really problematic and we couldn't seem to learn fast enough to keep up with the changes we were making. And if I look back now with my most generous, open-hearted self, I think, oh, yeah, we needed, we needed guidance. We needed frameworks. We needed other people to share their stories so that mm-hmm. we could learn best practices and some, some great big, hey, maybe, maybe don't try this. Like maybe don't move in together immediately. Um, we didn't, we didn't know what not to do. And I also needed to do a lot of growing up and maturing. And it's hard to do that in the context of a relationship where you're not allowed to talk about jealousy and your whole relationship is based on rules that will hold everything together. But I didn't know that. It was rough. It was really rough. (laughs) Right. Yeah, the thing, I was just thinking as you're talking about how much vulnerability is needed now. I mean, we'll get into solutions later, but how very few people understand how important vulnerability is and we armor ourselves against each other and we don't talk about what's mm-hmm. real. We just avoid it. The don't yeah. ask, don't tell thing is like avoidance of the feelings. But I'm just dying to get into your mm-hmm. jealousy research. So is there any other um, of your personal lessons that you want to share before we get into that? Yeah, you know, one that stands out to me is I think I didn't know when I was in the early stages that any number of things were possible. But something I didn't see coming that was really important was I started to put a lot of blame on marriage and monogamy. Like I started to, Mm -hmm. like in order to protect myself in this new identity I had, I started to really demonize where I'd come from. And Mm -hmm. The irony was that a few years later, I was still with one of these partners, um, and it turned out I really wanted to get married, and I really wanted to dabble and dip my toe back into monogamy for a little while, mm-hmm. and it was such a taboo. I had made the mainstream idea. I had made it taboo, and then we, we were, again, locked in a pattern that wasn't helpful, and mm. when, when we broke that and allowed ourselves to explore with an, an evolution of hey, what do we want to try? How do we make this work for us? Mm-hmm. That was the gateway to finding a, a way to be non-monogamous that really did work for us and could grow and change as we grew and changed, as our family grew and changed. We have seven kids together. It's uh-huh. a dynamic system. And I wish I could go back and tell younger me, it's okay for it to evolve and change and grow as you do. Right, exactly. I love that. So good, so good. Okay, well, there's so much to talk about with what you've learned in your research and everything. Um, so maybe you could start with just some general stuff about, like, overall, what did you learn about jealousy? Did you do your dissertation on jealousy or, or what? I did. 
Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, so when what I was were some of the larger, doctorate, like macro part things that you learned? <laughs> yeah, I decided to, to, to study jealousy because it is an understudied topic. And the first thing that I learned that really stands out, really, I, I feel, helps me understand what jealousy is doing is just that jealousy is a warning signal. It's, it's not there to harm us. It's hardwired. We, we can spot jealousy as young as six months old. The research very clear wow. about that. Mm. It's, it's not that jealousy in itself is a problem. However, um, it doesn't serve us very well in that original infantile form that's designed to connect us to our primary caregiver. It doesn't serve mm-hmm. us if we keep acting out in that six-month-year-old, <laughs> that six-month, one-year-old sort of way when we're mm-hmm. adults. And it definitely mm-hmm. doesn't serve when we take it into that romantic world in that same way, which is to say we, we want no competition. We want to push everything away because, in reality, we share the world with lots of other people. And as I was studying jealousy, I noticed that a lot of people really had a a polarized vision of jealousy. Either they had completely pushed it out of their realm of knowledge, like they really denied feeling jealousy altogether, or they really were just consumed by it and and Mm -hmm. it just overwhelmed them. And either way, they were winding up with the same problem. They were winding up with jealousy running a lot of the show. So the the primary find was that when jealousy is not made talk aboutable, when jealousy Mm -hmm. is hidden in the corner, that's when it is most likely to cause really big problems. Mm -hmm. And we often hide it in the corner ourselves. Uh, I noticed those yeah. of us that are already experienced in open relationship, we judge ourselves like, oh, I shouldn't still be feeling jealous after X mm-hmm. number of years or how come I'm not past this, right? Like we self-shame about it too. Yes. So I studied jealousy. My first, my dissertation study was in, on polyamorous individuals. And currently I'm rerunning the study, but on monogamous individuals. And oh. one of the things that has has been established now is that in the – in the polyamorous individuals, there was this thing that I termed the myth of the good poly person. And so some of the people I interviewed really struggled with their jealousy because they felt that they shouldn't have any because mm-hmm. they were polyamorous. Right. And interestingly, the more, the more able to digest it and allow themselves to just still experience it, the less, ten, you know, the, the less um, tenacious the jealousy was. And the more it could become part of just the overall set of emotions that were felt, just like anger, sadness, fear, which is really what jealousy is made of anyways. Right, exactly. If we can just love the person as they are, like I said, the Mm -hmm. vulnerability of like, I I remember an experience I had where I had just taught a jealousy workshop. And then later that night I was at a play party and I saw my partner with somebody else (laughs) and I got jealous. And so I was like, okay, you guys, I need to slow down. And I got to practice what I preach. And I, I got to just stop the scene and say, I need some reassurance right now. Can you guys hold me? And they did. The three other people that we were with held me and I cried and they, and I said, can you give me reassurance that you want me here? And they did. And it literally took like three or four minutes. And I was like, okay, <laughs> I'm good. Yeah. <laughs> I knew, I knew yeah. exactly what I wanted and I was courageous enough to, 
say I need, because they don't want to keep going if I'm upset and yes. find out later that I was miserable the whole time. That would ruin their experience. <laughs> right. You know, in my studies, I have found that there are people who will weaponize jealousy. That's a real thing. There are people who would enjoy, in a sort of perverse way, enjoy twisting the screw of jealousy. But mm. that, like, we, we could say the same thing about someone who's overly controlling or using rage, right? Like, so any, any emotion can be weaponized. Any emotion could be used that way. But I think you're right when you say people who we are relating to in genuinely, like, relational ways, in, in healthy human ways, they want to be invited into our process. But with jealousy, we do have to get around a really sticky situation, with it, which is that most of us were raised with some level of shame around jealousy. And mm -hmm. it's, at least in my research, what I found is um, most people were not taught anything really specific about jealousy. It's just that it's very, you're very, very young when you're told you need to share your toys, your siblings um, have to share your attention, their, the attention with your parents. It comes in as really subtle um, background messages very, very young. So we don't have explicit teachings about jealousy so much as we just feel this sort of ick around it. And that mm -hmm. ick, that's where we try to hide stuff. And so if you're feeling shame, now it can be hard. So some people won't even be able to name jealousy, or they might feel more comfortable calling it envy, or they might feel mm -hmm. more comfortable saying that they're anxious. That's mm -hmm. all fine. But if you are experiencing fear about the interruption of your connection to a loved one, that's jealousy. Boom. Mm -hmm. Like right, right there. If you, that's all it is. And it's okay to call a spade a spade. If we can destigmatize right. jealousy, we can work with it. Right. Yeah, I have a button that I wear when I go to conferences that says I'm jealous because people go, wait a minute, you're, <laughs> yes. you're a polyamory coach and you're jealous? So it normalizes it. Yeah, totally. Like, I still get jealous. Of course I do. I, right. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. kind of the beauty I mean, of like it. That, that it still works. Go, go, yeah, well, that's what we learn in the default culture, that we're supposed to bend over backwards to keep our partner from ever feeling jealous. Like, it's my responsibility right. to keep my partner from ever feeling it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. And so yeah. you point your fingers outward and say, I need you to stop behaving in a particular way or doing a particular thing so that I don't feel this thing. But then we mm -hmm. never get to really interact with our inner story of what exactly is happening. Because jealousy, mm -hmm. so I study jealousy from an archetypal perspective, which means I see it as having many, many faces. You know, there's the type of jealousy that is rageful um, and has like big Aries energy, um, Hera energy, like big energy like that. But there's also the type of jealousy that's very sad and grievous and like very pathetic energy. See, they're all valid and relevant. And yet, many people think of jealousy as just one thing and they just shove it away. I think if we really differentiate it and we get to know jealousy, there's a lot of opportunity to get to know ourselves. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. Well, what else have you learned in your research that can make jealousy softer for us? Mm -hmm. One of the big learns for me was in working with people who had allowed themselves to experience jealousy. <laughs> um, and, well, this is, so a third of my initial study 
um, had found jealousy to be arousing and had let themselves explore that. Now, mm-hmm. when I say this in kink communities, often people are just like, right, of course, you know, a- anything, right. anything could be arousing. But many people who aren't in a kink community may not have exposure to the idea that something could be not like not pleasant, not typically pleasurable, but could still cause pleasure. And so right. there's this there's this really interesting idea of playing at the edge of your comfort zone with jealousy to see if in fact you are fearful or angry or sad or whether you are aroused or whether maybe you're all of those things all at once. And if there's arousal in there, and this is what I've been experimenting with in my own work, if there's arousal present, then how might I leverage that pleasurable feeling of arousal rather than letting it tip over into a negative, treat the jealousy as neutral and see if I can in fact find some pleasure. Not just in compersion, because compersion is wonderful, but also just in, hey, jealousy is arousing. So what happens if I let myself lean into that? And I've found some pretty impressively powerful orgasmic response in there. And I think it's an untapped mode for some people. Um, And I I keep doing this research because I think that there's a lot for us to potentially discover down this this road. Right. And so what about um, people that, you know, it's typically like a man that has a cuck fantasy, mm-hmm. um, but it could mm-hmm. doesn't have to only be men. Like, does that have something to do with what you're talking about, where they're kind of creating turn-on from Definitely. the jealousy? Mm-hmm. Definitely. So, you know, Dr. Maya Angelou has that great quote, um, a little jealousy in uh, – jealousy is like salt in food. A little enhances the savor, but too much spoils the dish. I think uh-huh. a, a really lovely cuck fantasy is just – just the right amount of salt in a dish, right? There is this this tension that's created, right? And tension is arousing. And so as long as we're staying in the zone where I feel at core loved and wanted, but I'm playing in in my edges of what it might feel like to also be threatened or to be not wanted, right? That in that space, we could find tension that is really erotic, arousing, and exciting. And if the aftercare is good, right? If you feel cared for, embraced, reassured when you want it, then this can be some of the best erotic experience that you've ever had. Right. A lot I've of times couple- so people have that shame come up and then you have to unpack that too. Right. Exactly. I've had a couple of clients who came to me after being swingers and they had that, you know, hot wife is what they call it in the swinger world. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah. And then the, you know, it was originally supposed to be a turn-on for the man and enhance the couple's sex life, but then the woman ended up falling for um, the person she was supposed to just be having recreational sex with, so they needed help yeah. to how to navigate that. And so, like, I'm thinking of one particular client who um, I think that it was, he had so much jealousy. So during the play, he was super turned on, and then the next like later that day or the next day, he would just suffer. He had so much jealousy. And I think that the hot wife fantasy for him was a way to control, to try to take control of that primal feeling of like, this is my woman. It's my wife. She's mine, my property. And I'm going to give her to you temporarily 
you know, it's a way to kind of control that. Does that make sense? Yeah. It certainly does. It sounds like a, a potential explanation. I could also imagine a situation where someone really doesn't understand how to hold the tension of their own wants and desires with their actual boundaries. You know, lots of people mm-hmm. find that, like, they have they have conflicting boundaries and and desires. And then one night something sounds great, and the next morning it really, really doesn't. But I think mm-hmm. it's interesting that you're highlighting control because when we talk about jealousy, if you take a, a an evolutionary psychologist's approach to jealousy, we would say it's largely to do with control, to do with dominance, to do with a, a, a sort of um, traditionally uh, hyper-masculine perspective of ownership and entitlement. And in those ways, jealousy is profoundly dangerous. I mean, we can't overlook the fact, no matter how much we want to defang jealousy, we can't overlook the fact that until the 80s, some states excused murder if it was about, you know, like a lover's quarrel. So, you know, we really do have to pay close attention to when control enters the picture. It can be dangerous. Yeah. And so I know you talk about, um, well, actually, before we go into a slightly different topic, let me just uh, welcome people who may have joined us late. Um, You're listening to Leading Edge Radio. This is your host, Sumati Sparks, the open relationship coach at sumatisparks.com. And we're speaking with Jolie Hamilton, a research psychologist and sexuality educator, who did her dissertation on jealousy, so we've had a juicy conversation about that. Um, but I wanted to talk to you a little bit about like individuation, individuation, because I know a lot of couples mm-hmm. come to me they're very enmeshed, and we don't want to be too individual, or what's the point of having a relationship? <laughs> we don't want to be too enmeshed either, yeah. so there's that happy medium. And so how, how do you um, see that, that need for sovereignty so that you're not, like an example I often give is, you know, you said you'd be home at 11 and then you came home at 11.05 and they have a big fight over it, you know, because they're so, there's no allowing of the different freedoms that, that can happen because they're so enmeshed with each other. So yeah. can you speak to that? Yeah, I I think that what you're talking about is um, it, it's really tender material, right? Our cultural norms around relationships they don't tend towards a differentiated, individuated, not individualistic, but individuated um, way of relating. Our our Mm -hmm. American cultural tendency is more toward a codependent style, right? And Mm -hmm. I personally was brought up in a household where codependence was not only the norm, but it was actually celebrated. Mm -hmm. Um, And this meant that I perpetuated that. Uh, And there's a lot there's a lot to be said for finding the sweet spot for you because when you withdraw, when, you're, when you allow yourself to withdraw enough of your sense of self, capital S, self, so that you, you are two separate individuals walking a path together, that's when the potential for you to become the fully individuated differentiated whole you, the mature you, not the undifferentiated whole that was born to this world, perfect and wonderful just as you are, but the differentiated, the person who has had experiences, that whole person, 
it can only happen if we are allowed to relate to the other, but also be entirely ourselves. And mm -hmm. I, I love to work with couples on this exact kind of relating because people who want to, to really have an individuation partner, someone who will be there for those hard moments, not to enmesh, not to, to overlap so entirely that, that we lose ourselves, but to really be present to the other's growth and change and difference, that kind of relationship really, I think it's what many of us are looking for now, but we don't necessarily know what to call it. I call mm -hmm. it an individuation relationship. That's, that's my word for it because I studied Jungian psychology, so that's the right term for it in that realm. But when I think about that couple who, you know, who, meet, who feels the need to, like, harp on that five-minute difference or something, mm -hmm. I know that pain. I know what that feels like. I, I know what it feels like to be in my own self and be like, wanting, wanting control over something, something like time or where my partner is, because in fact, I'm not feeling at peace in myself. I'm not feeling right. complete and whole. And the beauty of non-monogamy is we get a lot of opportunities to practice making mistakes and then allowing ourselves to state our boundaries, but also give our partner grace. Right? Like, so I can state my boundary of, of what, I, what I need for reassurance, what I would like to agree on for time, and also give each other grace for traffic and for life and for being different. And it's not the easiest path to walk, but it really is a delicious one. It's right. challenging. Right. I forgot to mention that if you have any questions for Jolie, please feel free to call in. The call-in number is 657-383-1132. And you won't interrupt us. You'll be put on hold and we'll grab your call at the right time. Again, that number is 657-383-1132. Um, yeah, I often notice that people get into relationships to, like, fill that void. And so I'm often teaching people how to, you know, I, I call it getting a life. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of a, a harsh way, a tough love way of saying it. But, like, when they're so, their whole life is their partner that, the only person they ever talk to that's the person they go to to mm -hmm. you know for emotional support for recreation for sex for everything and so I often mm -hmm. teach my clients to find other friends that they can go to for various forms of intimacy it doesn't have to be a full-on polyamorous thing but you could just have a cuddle buddy that you watch movies with or somebody to cry with when you're upset so you're not only going to your partner and when I find that when we are resourced that way we can come to our partner from a place of giving rather than trying to get something from them. Does that make sense? Right. It does. It completely makes sense. And, you know, I like to work with people on the idea of non-monogamy, but also creative monogamy. There's, it doesn't have to look any one particular way. I think what you're talking about is such a brilliant way to practice opening ourselves to more without necessarily starting by jumping in the deep end of the pool. You know, some people mm -hmm. will. They'll jump off. I did, certainly. I jumped off mm -hmm. into that pool head first without warning. Um, and yet, what a wonderful way to open yourself to more by simply creating more intimate friendships and connections that allow you to experience yourself in relation to other in multiple directions. And really what more could, for me, when I think about a well-lived life, 
that's what I'm looking for. That's what I'm hoping for. And when my clients are missing that, I notice, we, we usually notice it very early on that no amount of adventurous sexual play will fill up a void that comes from not feeling resourced in myself and not feeling like mm-hmm. I can really connect to other. So often mm-hmm. we have to go back to the drawing board and get back to those, like you said, the friendships, the, the connections. How can I feel related to people? Right. And so often people think that when they have, you know, they decide to have an open relationship or be polyamorous, they're just going to have all this sex and fun <laughs> and they get, they bump up against their deepest core wounds first. And so oh, yeah. when I teach people, I have them start there. Like, what's that core wound that's getting triggered? And let's have it. This is an opportunity to heal that stuff. So do you find that with the people you work with, that they end up dealing with their their issues that happened when they were, like, below the age of six? A hundred percent of the time. It's, uh-huh. I think it, it might be the least understood aspect of of opening yourself up because opening up, at least in my book, it's not about um, it, it's not about sex. It's about opening yourself up and seeing what's in there. And because I studied depth psychology, I take the unconscious really seriously. And that means all the stuff that happens before you really remember what happened really mm-hmm. does need to be taken into account. But that doesn't mean we need to spend our whole life looking back over our shoulder. And I think that's where people get worried like oh if i if i look backward then I, I might get lost in that but i find it really valuable for people to see it just as you said as an opportunity to go in and explore and really experience what it felt like to be abandoned what it feels like to have to share to be alone what it feels like to be with myself um but to do so in a safe container to do so that in in either a coaching container a therapeutic container or in a loving relationship that really is intentionally um putting energy into tending to those wounds rather than just trying to get laid i love getting laid but (laughs) i'll take core (laughs) wound feeling 10 times over Yeah, and then after you do that work, or at least when you're on the path of being able to understand what your issues are and work with them and hold them and love yourself through them, then the sex gets really awesome. <laughs> but sometimes yeah. it can take right. a few years of of doing some deep healing work if you haven't already done that in your life. Yeah, there's the thing. And often I'll work with people who they're used to holding um, a lot of power. They're, they're frequently people who, you know, own companies, they, they're CEOs, they're, they're high-powered, and so they're not used to having to admit that there are still some great big areas of their life that need tending. And so mm-hmm. this can expose those. And so even if they've already spent years doing some of this deep work, there's often new layers that become exposed through this practice because it really isn't about um, – what anybody else is doing. It's about how you're experiencing it, which means it's a huge opportunity. But a, but if you go into it thinking it's an opportunity only for pleasure and miss the fact that it's an opportunity for growth, you're really going to be disappointed in my, in my experience. And 
Mm-hmm. And there's the rub because a lot of people come in for the fun and don't realize that the real joy over the long term, you know, I'm, I'm past a decade now myself. The real joy is in, oh, my God, this is a real accelerated path of finding out what the hell's going on in here and dealing with it. Mm-hmm. And so what, like, jealousy and, and all that, all the deeper feelings, how how can we use those to you know, lead to like even deeper connections. Yeah. Um, my favorite thing about jealousy is that it's an indicator that you care about someone. So mm-hmm. that's great news because, you know, when somebody comes to me and starts talking about jealousy and is talking about ending a relationship, um, the first thing I ask them to do is just pause, just, just pause with me and, and stay with me for a couple of sessions to just be with the fact that the jealousy itself tells you that there's caring going on. Now, we still want to find out exactly what you're caring about, because if the care um, turns out to be a lot more about control and just wanting control over every situation, then we have a lot of individual work to do usually. But jealousy is telling me I care about someone and I care about a particular connection I have. That's not bad news, right? So if I know I care, now it's about what can I do to express this care in a way that is not controlling, but instead engaging and about deepening the relationship. And a lot of times that's about breathing new life back into this relationship. Let's say perhaps a a primary partnership. I'm thinking of a couple that I've been working with for a while, a primary partnership that had gotten a little bit stale, but basically was really, really solid and and loving. But because of this staleness, this this lack of erotic um, energy, they looked outside, and that looked really fun. But when the jealousy popped up, what became exposed was how much they wanted each other, this intense desire to be loved by each other and to be witnessed mm-hmm. by each other that had been completely, like, obscured in just sort of a, a, an ennui, you know, a, a real a haze, a fog, if you will. And so the opportunity that jealousy brought was to say, oh, no, I really do care about this person and I care about knowing them. And so I'm going to sit with and tolerate this jealousy while I learn to engage fully with my partner again without controlling and instead by inviting them to share with me who they are, who they've become, mm-hmm. what they care about, what they love. And what I've noticed is the, the more patient people can be with their jealous feelings, the more opportunity they have to deepen their experience of the other. But they have to be patient with the jealousy because we can't ask jealousy to just go away. It's archetypal. It's not going anywhere. We can invite other feelings to come and sit next to it, and that's really mm. effective in my experience. But jealousy, like trying to push it underwater is like trying to hold a beach ball underwater. It's right. going to pop back up, and you won't know where. Mm-hmm. Right. And so what about when there's couples that one of them wants to move faster as far mm-hmm. as, you know, adding new lovers into their life and the other one is like, whoa, Nelly, <laughs> like, do you have to sleep with them yeah. already? Like, can I just kind of like breathe for a week or two? Like, what do you do when they're like persons at a different pacing? Yeah. Pacing such an interesting conundrum, right? Because on the one hand, I, I, I always actually call up my own situation here, and I remind myself that 
equal doesn't equal fair, right? Like my, my partner, my primary partner, my anchor partner is um, pretty well known for saying he would not want to match me date for date. He, was, he is not mm-hmm. interested. And that's because we have different needs and desires. Mm-hmm. But that means he has to sit with the reality that we don't move at the same pace. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's taken practice. That's taken lots of practice. Now, on the other hand, when I think about pacing, uh, and this is, this is a really tender situation, right? If it's about rushing to sexual connection or rushing into deeply emotionally, um, psychologically or spiritually or financial vulnerability with a new person, that feels more like a, a negotiation to me. Because when we, ex- when we want to share our full vulnerability with someone, but we've decided to have an ongoing um, relationship with another person, now we are by nature involving everyone, right? Like that, vul- I can't open myself up without also opening the door to my household, my family. Like it's, it's all connected. So I think there is something to be said for having some established patterns around how quickly we will escalate particular new situations. Um, mm-hmm. And I don't think there has to be a hard and fast rule, but for instance, I will often remind people that, you know, there's no rush to great sex. If great sex is in the offing, like we don't actually have to have it tonight. We, mm-hmm. we can take a beat and wait. And, and in fact, anticipation generally increases that juiciness. So when I, when I think about pacing, I always think, what is it? What is the rush exactly? Because I, I tend to be a fairly fast paced person myself, but in fact, that rush is often my smaller parts, my wounded core parts that are, that are acting out and maybe not my highest self. So that's Mm -hmm. a moment for me to take a beat and say, what am I really trying to get here? Am I trying to get validation or am I actually trying to perversely like get my part, like provoke my partner's jealousy? I might Mm. be. So I have to get curious about myself if I'm the one that's trying to rush. And if, on the other hand, if it's, if it's my partner trying to rush, well, what, am I, what does that mean? It, are we really talk about, talking about rushing or are we talking about just always moving at the pace of the slowest partner? Because that could also be a form of control. You know, like, mm-hmm. this is a really complicated topic. I've definitely seen plenty of couples who – agree to always move at the pace of the slowest partner. But I've seen people six, seven, eight years in who still are barely dipping their toes in the water. And yet they've been, you know, talking about this forever. And at some point experimentation can be a really good teacher. So Mm -hmm. I don't think there's a simple answer to that question. Bottom line. There, there isn't. No, I have this very crass analogy where like if somebody's, you know, sleeping on my couch because they had a hard time in their life, I will let them stay there as long as I see that they're looking for a job and they're, you know, really going out and trying to get their life back together. But if they're just hanging out all day scrolling social media, I'm going to be like, get off my couch, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So sometimes and, if, if the partner doesn't feel like the other one is like, you know, really trying and really doing their growth work, they're in, they're seeing a coach or a counselor, they're reading the books, they're, you know, they're really trying, then I think we can be more patient with them. Right, right. And, and 
when I notice that partners are moving at different paces and they come from vastly different attachment histories, vastly different trauma histories, you know, that's where some education for each partner on what, what this might look like, what a, what a healing path might look like given the circumstances. Because often we just, we really need help from the outside to see what it might be like to be in our partner's shoes. Um, you know, yeah. I have a much deeper trauma history than that my partner. Well, I, yeah, he might need to know what that would look like and vice versa. And that mm-hmm. can really help bridge those gaps where pacing feels almost insurmountable. Maybe you just might need a little education about what it might look like time-wise. And so we talked about um, different pacing, but what if a couple has different sexual or affection needs? Mm. Oh, well, First, I always want to ask people who say that they have, say, desire mismatch. I like to really get into that because when people say they have different sexual needs or different desires, I think I need a lot more detail because, you know, I have sat in rooms of hundreds of sex educators and therapists and counselors and asked them to define sex for me. And you're hard-pressed to come up with two answers that are the same. You know, so Uh first tell me, what do you mean when you say you have different sexual needs? What exactly? Let's elaborate. Let's really enliven this description because often there are many differences, and a lot of them can be bridged. But if we're talking about differences that are actually mutually exclusive, um, well, that might be okay, too. That might be, again, an education gap. Maybe we need to learn. If one partner, for instance, is asexual but not aromantic, then perhaps there's a whole new sex life for everybody involved to imagine. Maybe there's sexual partners outside of a couple that participate with one partner, but maybe another partner has an intimate romantic connection to someone else. Maybe romance is shared but sex isn't. There are so many ways. If it's a kink differentiation, well, there are so many ways to think about that, including the fact that not all kink has to do with sex and not all sex has to do with kink. So, again, we have to really dig into this. What do the partners mean? And what would an ideal situation look like? And then what would an acceptable situation look like? Because a lot of times we're aiming for this ideal, but then there's a whole range of, well, that would all be acceptable to me. And I think most of us, can work with a life that is filled with acceptable and then has lots of moments of peak, right? But most of us aren't actually trying to exist at peak all the time because, honestly, it's exhausting. So (laughs) if we can, like, widen our range and allow ourselves to experience a a broad range of ways of being intimate with our partner, that difference might actually, that difference gap might shrink, and we might find that we have more in common than we realize. Mm -hmm. Awesome. That's great. And I know you have um, a specialty helping people get through uncomfortable conversations. So what is, mm. what, how much of that are you willing to share with us here? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I always say that I came to uncomfortable conversations naturally. Everybody's born with, you know, their, their particular superpowers. And um, mm-hmm. one of mine is that I, I don't experience a lot of discomfort if I can talk about something. Mm-hmm. And, What I find is most of the people who seek me out do not experience that. And, in fact, the very nature of their problems is often to do with 
having things that they believe are not talk aboutable. They just, like right at their core, the thing feels not like they cannot speak it. And one of the exercises I like to do with people really early on is to have them establish some intimate vocabulary together because most of the time what happens is we get together with a partner and we just sort of escalate to whatever degree and we never really talk about, let, for instance, what, pop, what names do I like to use for my body parts? What feels sexy to me? You know, which words feel juicy and delicious and which ones are a total turnoff? Start mm-hmm. establishing that kind of vocabulary so that the couple grows their tolerance because they actually can meet each other where they want to be. And from that, right, right from that little start of how do I want to talk about sex and intimacy? How do I, like, literally, what are the words I want to hear and what are the words that really won't work? And I give people a list and say, cross off the words that don't work, put stars next to the ones that you love, circle the ones that you're like, yeah, I think that could work. Get that kind of specific. By doing that, all of a sudden, new conversations become possible. Because most of the time, what we don't have is these basic building blocks of difficult conversations. So how do you have a really complex conversation about, say, wanting to have sex with multiple people in one room all at once if I can't tell you what I want you to call my breasts, right? It's mm-hmm. this, so these basic building blocks, it's really going back to the beginning and saying, let's get really clear. And then from there, incrementally increase the risk so that I get a chance to, to reestablish a safe container for conversation with this person. And over mm-hmm. a course of just a few months, we really can establish a new conversational pattern where conversations that once felt impossible become not just possible, but quite normal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, when you say there are certain topics that just feel like they're not talkaboutable, um, it makes me think of, uh, so many men I've worked with who um, just feel like they can't bring up the topic of open relationship with their partner. It's just not possible. Yeah. Just even broaching the subject, they're afraid their wife will leave them. Yeah. Yeah. So do you have any this kind is, of a cheat sheet for those people? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, one of the things I like to tell people, I, as I have a podcast myself and one of the things I talk about is the fact that, um, you don't have to want to open to any particular degree, but you might want to look for some examples of healthy um, couples having conversations. So I point people to my podcast or to other couples who I know who have actual conversations with partners and say, hey, I heard about, I heard about this on a podcast, and I don't know what this could look like for us, but I heard about this. And throw those other people under the bus, throw me and my anchor partner under the bus and let us take some of the weight of bringing a conversation like this up. Because Mm. most of the time when I find it, it's a lack of imagination. So when I say, hey, do you want to open up a relationship? Whoa, now you've actually, you've just like crushed into the other person's imaginal space, right? Like busted it open like the Kool-Aid man through a wall. When you introduce it through somebody else's conversation where they're just gently talking to each other about what it feels like to maybe explore a little more broadly, maybe not even like full on polyamory, but just, you know, going to a strip club together, something really, you know, basic like that. When you explore it through another couple's conversation, 
that can be more humanizing, less stigmatizing, and can be a reminder that, in fact, this can be anything you want it to be. It's not about your worst possible fear. Because that Kool-Aid man crashing through the wall, it's, it's the big fear. It's the, I'm going to be left, I'm going to be left behind, or this means something's broken in my relationship. And, of course, I mean, non-monogamy is completely stigmatized in our culture, so a present for many people. So mm-hmm. we need to provide our partners with a context in which this could be actually really normal, healthy, and yummy. And I think that's mm-hmm. why, I mean, I, I'm at liberty to be out in my life. And one of the reasons I am out with my anchor partner is because I want there to be examples of this being, I mean, we have seven kids. We're like soccer mom, soccer dad. Like we're so <laughs> average in so many ways. And I like for people to just see like, yeah, this is just another way of experiencing love. That's all. That's all it is. And it doesn't have to look any one way. It can look a lot of ways over the course of a relationship. And most of all, it doesn't mean anything about your relationship any more than monogamy does. It's mm-hmm. not a moral value judgment, but it might feel mm-hmm. like one when it's first brought up. Right. Exactly. Wow. That's really powerful. I've really loved hearing your wisdom tonight. Are Any final words of wisdom before we start to wrap up and I'll give you a chance to tell people how to reach you? Yeah. You know what? I think the thing I would say to wrap up is just that I hope people understand that jealousy is totally possible to work with. Under all circumstances, your jealousy is possible to work with. If jealousy is being pointed at you and it is violent, challenging, or your boundaries or overwhelming, that's not your responsibility to work with. But the jealousy you're feeling inside of yourself, wherever it is, I would love for people to feel free and empowered to seek help and say, I'm feeling jealousy and it's overwhelming because it is very workable, but often people feel like it is not or it's shameful and they hide it. So, yeah, let's bring our jealousy out of the shadows. Right. Beautiful. I love it. Well, thanks again so much for being with us, Julie. I've learned so much, and I want to give you a chance to tell our listeners how they can reach you. And I think you have an offer for them, too, so take it away. Yeah, so I would love for anybody who would like to connect with me further and have that conversation about, like, what is sex and how do we do this? Um, you can go to listen to Jolie, let's just listen to J-O-L-I um, dot com and grab my free relationship guides. Um, they're a great source for just starting these conversations. And anybody who's looking to find my podcast can go to Project Relationship on any of your major players. Fabulous. That's so cool. I love that. <laughs> and, and your book, Thanks too, so is, is there on that same website? It is. So my book is called Project Relationship as well. And that actually was written for monogamous and non-monogamous couples alike. It's, a, it's an action plan for taking some really conscious steps toward creating a relationship that you actually need to have. Um, so now, no matter where you are on the monogamy to non-monogamy spectrum, Project Relationship is a pretty easy entry guide, and you can find it on Amazon. Cool. And as I told you right when we first got on this, um, this call, um, I was enjoying watching your TED Talk about compersion. So just search mm-hmm. for Jolie Hamilton on TEDx, and she's got a great TED Talk there too. So I'll put that plug out for you. <laughs> Thanks so much. Uh-huh. 
Well, thank you so much again for being with us on Leading Edge Love, and I wish you all the best with your practice. Thanks, Samantha. Okay, we'll talk to you later. Thank you. Okay, so we are we have another um, we have another episode next week. Um, we had to move this one, so it's going to be two weeks in a row. So next week we are meeting with Tanya Todd, who has a podcast called 52 Love, and it was born out of a blog by the same name. Um, she takes one intimacy tip per week to take and use with your partner to help improve intimacy in your relationship. So let's talk to Tanya about all her tips and how, how it's been going with all the people that have been using them. I'm sure we can learn a lot. So join us next week. That's the first Tuesday of June. I believe it's the maybe, or the 7th, I don't know, (laughs) Um, June 6th, I think it is, at uh, 5.30 p.m. Pacific Time and 8.30 p.m. Eastern Time on Leading Edge Love Radio on Blog Talks Radio. See you guys then. Bye-bye, everyone.